millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. So she would always come back to me, but she was, well, she did the kinds of things that addicts do. You know, she'd phone me at five in the morning wanting a place to stay. And I wasn't even living in my own home. I was roommate. So I couldn't take her in. So she was trying to get help. Um, her children were in ministry care and she was trying to get them back. And so she would, she was trying to establish some stability. So she would come to me. So I, I think what, what's coming to me out of this that I really want to enhance is that she kept trying. She kept trying, you know, and that's sort of where she was at just Prior to, she was trying to get her life back on track. She was trying to get her kids. And so she was trying to establish visitations at my house. Unfortunately, I was roommating. If it had been, I mean, who knows how it would have gone if it was my own house. For a growing number of Canadians, having a roof over your head and a warm, dry place to sleep is becoming a privilege. Homeless counts from across the country are showing a grim rise in the number of people who find themselves living with precarious housing, or none at all. But life on the streets looks different in remote and rural areas. There is no downtown core with a collection of wraparound services and nonprofits. Instead, there are vans, cars, RVs, and tents. There are camps that dot the back roads or that are hidden among the trees on the beaches, and along the highway rest stops. And within many of these camps exist a hierarchy. There are bosses. There are rules to be followed and permissions to be granted. There are codes of silence. Even folks who choose to live separate from the camps can become victims of these hierarchies. While for some folks, the camps represent a sense of safety and community, for others, they can be incredibly dangerous. Tonight, we present the disappearance of Carmel Gilmore, and you are listening to True North True Crime.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to True North True Crime. Thanks for joining us. If you're new to True North True Crime, welcome, and make sure to hit subscribe or follow on whichever platform you're listening on. If you guys notice I sound a little weird this week, I'm getting over a cold, and I do apologize. If you'd like more True North True Crime, you can subscribe to TNTC Plus on Apple Podcasts or on Patreon. For $5 a month, you'll get early access to regular episodes. All of our episodes will be ad-free, and of course, you'll get exclusive bonus episodes. We invite anyone with case suggestions to send us an email to truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. Please note we do prioritize cases that are sent to us directly from family members or close contacts of a case, but are more than happy to receive case suggestions from all of our listeners. If you're a longtime listener of the podcast, we want to extend a big thank you to you. We often hear back from family members of the cases that we cover, and they always express gratitude to you, our listeners. We wanted to pass that on to you. Just by listening and sharing these episodes, you are helping people and making a difference. So from both of us, thank you. Okay, let's go ahead and get right into this week's episode. So tonight we are talking about the 2017 disappearance of 36-year-old Carmel Georgina Gilmore. Carmel was last seen in the Parksville area of Vancouver Island on or around November 14, 2017. At the time of her disappearance, Carmel is described as a white female with shorter brown hair and hazel eyes. Carmel is 5'6 with a medium build. Anyone with information on Carmel's current whereabouts or details about her disappearance is asked to call the Oceanside RCMP at 250-248-6111. Or you can report a tip anonymously to Crime Stoppers by going to the website nanaimocrimestoppers.com or calling 1-800-222-8477. Carmel's file number is 2017-10474. We put this episode together using publicly available news articles. We also spoke at length with Carmel's mother, Barbara. Now, Barbara has been working tirelessly over the past six years to find out what happened to her daughter, and we are very grateful that she took the time to speak with us. We hope this episode helps. As an additional content warning, this episode includes content related to addiction, mental health, and a possible homicide. So Carmel Georgina Gilmore was born in 1981 in the East Kootenay town of Cranbrook, British Columbia. Carmel has an older brother and a younger sister. Her mother Barbara was a single mom and by her own admission lived an unstable lifestyle early in Carmel's life. It is clear from our interview that Barbara has fought hard to stabilize her own life, and Barbara does not sanitize her life as a young single mother. Here she speaks a little bit about Carmel's early life in Cranbrook. She was born in Cranbrook, B.C., and 1981. What was her childhood like? Well, I myself was a little unstable at that time. I lived up in the East Kootenays. We lived up in the East Kootenays. I was a single parent. And Carmel was actually adopted out when she was two years old to a family up there. And I returned to Vancouver Island, and she was returned to me at the age of four, which was pretty cool, actually. I I never expected to see her again. 
But um, back in the day, the, the people that adopted her wanted a closed adoption. So once it was done, it was I didn't have any contact until she returned to my doorstep at four years of age, and she was adorable. <laughs> yeah. So for a few years, Carmel was adopted out to another family while Barbara was able to stabilize her life. Eventually, Carmel was reunited with Barbara. We asked what Carmel was like as a child. Feisty. Feisty. And when she came back to me at four, she was angry. (laughs) She was angry. And um, I had a very good friend who we were quite liberal, like hippie type people. And she really helped me to get Carmel expressing herself. Um, because the people who had adopted her thought there was something wrong with her. And one of the things that they had said was that she ran funny, so she wouldn't run. So we, she was four years old and wouldn't run. So we would always like, encourage her to run and play. And um, it was a, the people who had adopted her had a very different um, lifestyle and life beliefs. So everything was meant to be kept very pristine and, you know, the dolls, you don't play with the dolls kind of thing. Just, I don't know, just different than me. So we spent a lot of time just getting her to, and and we lived to regret that at times because she was angry. (laughs) So that's what started getting expressed. And um, there was a period of time where they, her and her brother were in ministry care, not actually not long after she was returned to me. Barbara, Carmel, and the other siblings moved around quite a bit during Carmel's childhood. And as Barbara stated in that last clip, they also spent time in the care of the Ministry of Child and Family Development. Barbara worked with horses and various other jobs. As a result, she took positions in various places around the province of British Columbia. They lived um, in the Kootenays, the Lower Mainland, the Gulf Islands, and on Vancouver Island. I lived in Victoria for, for yeah, that was that was pretty good stuff. She went to daycare and school like any normal kid. And we also had, um, we were quite thickly into horses. Then, like, I'm a horse person. That's what I do. And so we had horses, and she showed the horses and really loved doing that. She was um, – the kind of child she was was the same as the kind of adult she was. She was whatever she was into, she was very passionately into it. And um, a bit of a spitfire. When Carmel was quite young, some of her teachers observed that she had some hidden talents – As a result, they did some testing in order to move her into a talented and gifted program. It was at this time that they noticed that despite being talented and bright, she was also working with a learning disability. More specifically, she seemed to struggle with the concept of testing. When she was in school, grade one and grade two and grade three, I think, she was in Victoria. And in grade one and grade two, she had to have learning assistance specifically for reading. By the time she got to grade three, she was nominated for the program for the gifted. And when she went to do the little test that they had to do, um, she didn't get in because she didn't complete the test because she was being meticulous about it. 
After Barbara moved to Salt Spring Island, which is one of the Gulf Islands, Carmel became a teenager. It was on Salt Spring that Carmel began to force her independence. And then we went to live on Salt Spring at one point in time, and that was I'm sort of jumping a little far ahead, but um, she, over on Salt Spring, she actually got into drugs at a pretty early age and was what we call free-range um, by the time she was 15, she actually wasn't living with us at all. She just went wherever she wanted, did whatever she wanted, um, stayed with her friends, and just kind of almost like went her own way. Barbara elaborated for us what Carmel's behavior looked like from her perspective. Um, Salt Spring, her schooling was she was... She was starting to get pretty independent, and so there were some difficulties there. She wasn't attending. <laughs> she wasn't attending. So um, one, one of the tactics that I used was I decided I was going to go to school with her to make sure she stayed there, and I attended a few classes on my own. I went, she didn't, so I took a few grade nine classes. <laughs> She put her hands on her hips at 14 years of age and said, I'm tired of being the good girl. I'm going out to be bad. And away she went. So at that point, it was kind of out of my hands. And I reflected on that at one point in time. Um, I may have this a little bit out of order, but because she's, <clears throat> she spent many years struggling with drugs and alcohol. So approximately half her life. So that was a pretty long period of time to be dealing with it, watching it, you know, all of that, right? Um, and I can't say she come, you know, she comes by it honestly. Um, because I'm a recovering alcoholic addict myself. As a teen and into her early adult years, Carmel lived a relatively independent life that was unfortunately tied up in drug use and a rougher crowd. However, she always maintained contact with Barbara and other family members. Carmel would live in housing, but she also camped and lived in the bush. We asked Barbara about Carmel's romantic relationships along with her job opportunities and her interests. Oh, she had several boyfriends along the way. There was, um, she actually left and went to Banff with one of the boyfriends. This is, this is prior to children, but she did have a relationship. She had a nine year relationship. Um, and so she was living in the area, but yes, she did have homes, um, a, sometimes an apartment, sometimes a whole, a house, um, she did have jobs. She had a variety of different jobs, but she really liked um, landscaping. She liked she liked her plants, and and that was one of her passions was her plants, and that was the job that she did for a fairly long time, actually, a long period of time. That's what she was doing just prior to um, going missing. Eventually, Carmel had two children, a son and then a daughter. Her son was born around 2001, and her daughter was born around 2010. Carmel would have been 20 and 29 when she became a mom. As an adult, Carmel struggled with addiction and substance misuse. 
She would have periods of managing better, but those periods would be followed by long relapses. Barbara helped us to understand what the years leading up to Carmel's disappearance were like. Well, I think that she was an addict, but she was somewhat stable in her lifestyle. Um, it, it, it really tanked drastically after her boyfriend introduced her to the people that took her down a bad path, like a really bad path. So in addition to the drugs and the addiction, there was a thugging lifestyle going on. And that was just, I would say, in the last oh, few months, six months or so prior to going missing. And she was kind of, she, she had been in recovery at one point and got back on track and was enrolled in school um, and doing really well. And her good friend helped her with that. And, and then they ended up working together. They had, they did landscaping together and then they both ended up back on drugs again. Um, so then it just sort of started to deteriorate from there. So that would have been about maybe two, two to five years before she went missing was, you know, when all that was going on, it was sort of a downhill slide. Um, and then it was, place to place at that point. She wasn't really homeless, but it was, you know, the periphery of that. And then she was actually living with her boyfriend. The boyfriend at the time was a very short-term boyfriend. I'm going to say two months or so. But they were living at his mother's place. And what was happening sort of all around is that no one kept her in the home for any length of time, including myself, which was very heart-wrenching because she was becoming violent and because she had a lifestyle of just basically using and abusing people and taking advantage of them and stealing from them. Um, so the boyfriend's mother had asked them to leave. And then that's when she ended up with the camp up on Little Mountain, which is the last place she was seen. As her life and addiction began to spiral, Carmel was living in her van. Life on the street is brutal. And having a vehicle provides an element of safety and independence, especially for a vulnerable woman living rough. Now, from what we understand, Carmel has never received any specific mental health diagnosis. However, people who use methamphetamine can sometimes exhibit behavior similar to psychosis, and this makes giving a proper diagnosis almost impossible. As a mom, Barbara struggled with her relationship with Carmel, a relationship that she says would sometimes become contentious. I know it because I've lived it. I get it, right? And, you know, because I was involved in a process of recovery myself, and one of the things I've had a lot of counseling about is that whole concept of not enabling, right? Which I adhered to as best I could. 
And then that led to um, a contentious relationship between her and I. Despite the sometimes contentious relationship, Carmel and Barbara remained in contact. Carmel would call Barbara often, and sometimes this was for a favor. Unfortunately, Carmel's behavior had been escalating, and when Barbara couldn't help her, Carmel threatened her. But we didn't, we didn't get along. We were estranged a lot of the time. And, and towards, like I remember my last visit with her, where she came uh, to visit me. I was actually staying um, at a condo that I was working on for a, a, an elderly lady that had gone into a home. And I couldn't keep her there. I had to take her back to her car. Uh, she threatened to stab me. And it was, you know, and so it, we weren't really even able to converse because we'd get a sentence into the conversation and, and, and she'd be attacking me, like verbally, right? The last time Barbara saw Carmel in person was a cause for concern. Her appearance had changed drastically and she had become aggressive. So, so she was coming back around quite a bit. Um, but it was always so contentious that I just, we couldn't just, we just couldn't get a toehold. But I did, you know, I tried to keep my door open for her. I tried to keep the communication open. But I think the mental illness was really showing itself because one of, well, actually my very last interaction with her was in public. She was doing all kinds of things to alter her appearance because she was convinced there were people after her. And so when I walked into the career center, I didn't even recognize her because she used to have really long brown hair, long, thick, wavy brown hair. And by the time she, when, when she went missing, she had very short dyed black hair and always the hoodie over her face. And we had a conversation that, you know, it was two sentences in, we were battling. And unknown to her, these con- I would walk away from these conversations shaking. And she was flailing her arms around and drug behavior, I think. But it was a little bit scary. And I said that. I said, you know, I kind of backed away from her. And she said, what, what, what's wrong? I won't, I wouldn't hit you. Well, I don't know that that's true. Um, And one of the things she kept saying over and over, you have my answers. You have my answers. And I think she was making reference to the mental illness. Because I've struggled with that myself. Um, I don't know if that's what it was, but that was my last conversation with her. And the people at the career center said, would you ladies like to go into this room and have a conversation? And I said, no, I would not, because I was afraid she was going to jump me. She had punched a good friend in the face and she threatened to stab me and, you know, just scary stuff. Now, it's easy to be a harsh judge in this situation. But Carmel is becoming violent and her behavior is escalating, and context does matter in this situation. At this point, Carmel was deep in her addiction, most likely to meth, and she was living in a van in the bush and hanging out with dangerous people. 
So in 2017, Carmel Gilmore was living in Parksville, British Columbia. Now, Parksville is an interesting community. It's located on the east coast of Vancouver Island, about 40 kilometers north of Nanaimo. Parksville is a growing community of about 14,000 people. It's an absolutely beautiful place that is best known for retirement and for hosting a sandcastle building competition called Beach Fest. But hidden in the forests and the bush around town is a homeless population. We've heard estimates from 80 people to 300 people living rough in the area. These folks stand in stark contrast to some of the old money that is Parksville. Now, the homeless folks themselves are not the issue as much as it is the drug trade that preys upon them. This drug trade is organized by gangs of ruthless individuals. The demand for those drugs has led to an uptick in theft, petty theft, property theft, and violent crimes related to the drug trade. Up until recently, Parksville was normally a quiet and reserved town. It is policed by the small Oceanside RCMP detachment. But by 2021, Parksville's Violent Crime Severity Index had doubled. This evened out by 2022, but the overall crime rate in town had surpassed the provincial average. So at this time, in 2017, Carmel was living in a camp in the Little Mountain area of Parksville. From the way it's been described to us, this was on private property. There were several vehicles and structures that people were living in. Carmel's two young children were not there with her. Rather, they were in government care through the Ministry of Child and Family Development. Barbara believes that this was partly Carmel's doing. Carmel knew that some of the people she was around were dangerous and her lifestyle was not conducive to raising children. During this time in that camp, Barbara believes that Carmel had been coerced into being a driver for one of the bosses of the property. This job involved driving one of the leaders around as he had a suspended license and a 6 p.m. curfew. From what we understand, some of these runs were just for supplies, but others were for drug dealing operations. Carmel didn't really want to be a part of it, but she felt she had little choice in the matter. But that is a story that was shared with me that she had gone, <clears throat> she had gone to her ex-mate and, and basically said, she, had, she said to him, will you please listen to me? No one will listen to me. And she told him the story about how this person had gotten in touch with her wanting her to drive him places and had given him the man, the person had given her $10 of gas to drive around and then wanted her to drive him up to Courtney or up Island and was angry because she wouldn't do it. At some point, and it's unclear why, perhaps it's because she didn't want to be a driver for this guy anymore, Carmel decided she didn't want to be at Little Mountain anymore or involved with the group that was living there. So we're now going to get into the timeline of Carmel's disappearance. According to Barbara, during Carmel's most recent attempt to get sober, she had met a man who was also seeking recovery or treatment. However, it seems that their attempt at recovery was short-lived. After the two hooked up, they both eventually relapsed. Now, according to the official narrative reported in newspapers, this man was the last person to see Carmel. Around 9 p.m. on November 14, 2017, Carmel was seen on surveillance video in the former liquor depot on Alberni Highway. These photos were recently released publicly by the RCMP. 
Then, according to reports from those inside the liquor depot, she was acting confused and paranoid. Carmel's then-boyfriend told Check 6 News that he was breaking up with her that night. However, she had convinced him to drive up to Little Mountain with her so that she could pack up her camp. Then, according to the boyfriend, the two arrived at the Little Mountain area between 10 p.m. and 11 p.m. He then says he got out of her van. And then, as he got out of her van, Carmel suddenly drove away. His wallet and some of his belongings were still in the van. This was apparently the last time that anyone saw Carmel. The next day, November 15th, the boyfriend spoke to the police about the fact that she had taken his things. So a lot of the media states that at this point the boyfriend reported her missing. However, Barbara says that he didn't actually report her missing. He reported the fact that she had taken off with his stuff. This triggered the police to try and find her. And that's when it was made clear that she was in fact missing. So here's Barbara with how she found out that Carmel was missing. So it was in fact the police that put out the missing persons report not the boyfriend. And my, my wonderful revelation came while my son and I were sitting in um, Woodgrove Mall uh, having lunch. We were shopping, Christmas shopping. And my son held up his phone and said, look at this. And it was the missing persons report. And, and was I angry? I was a little bit angry. And when I finally talked to the police, I said, you know what? I'm not hard to find. (laughs) I've lived here pretty much all my life. So to recap here, in November of 2017, Carmel was living in her van on a property near Little Mountain in Parksville, B.C. Then on the night of November 14th, she was seen at a liquor store. Later that evening, she went to Little Mountain to pick up some belongings. Then according to her then-boyfriend, she randomly took off in her van after they had some sort of disagreement. The next day, November 15th, 2017, 36-year-old Carmel Gilmore was reported missing. We are now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And we are back. So Barbara has been doing her own investigating over the years. Many people reach out to her with tips and stories, and she also does a lot of on-the-ground interviews with people who knew Carmel or knew of her. In a recent media appeal on December 8, 2022, the RCMP posted photos of Carmel from inside of a liquor store around 9 p.m. on the night she went missing. 
However, one of the versions of events that Barbara has heard differs slightly from the prevailing narrative. Barbara was told that the photos of Carmel at the liquor store are after she left the Little Mountain community. This makes the boyfriend's narrative and the media's narrative slightly different than what Barbara has learned. If Carmel was at the liquor store at 9 p.m. after she left Little Mountain, that means that the argument with her boyfriend did not happen around 10 p.m., but rather earlier, more like 8 p.m. Here's Barbara with some of what she has been told by people she has spoken to. And a lot of this I learned in hindsight from different people. Um, I have three columns. I have fact, logic, and speculation. Those pictures that they released and described as new pictures were actually taken at the liquor store in Parksville. Um, they're, They're security camera pictures. And she was just, I know the manager of the store, and she was described as being very agitated. And I believe those pictures are after she left Little Mountain. So uh, what I understand happened is that they were up on Little Mountain, her and the boyfriend, um, gathering up her camp. And he got out of the van. They and apparently they they I just recently learned of this. They were breaking up. So a fight, I guess, I don't know. But he stepped out of the van to pick up a couple of bags of garbage that was there, and she left. She left him there. Um, and that piece is believable because she did that to someone else early, much earlier on. She actually left the island, and and that was a bit of a, a scenario where I believe she was in a psychotic break, and I, it was a big scenario, anyways. And she did the very same thing to a young gentleman there. She left him on the side of the road up in beyond Kamloops. That was before the Little Mountain thing, but it was exactly the same thing. She just took off. So. Then I think she went to, um, and this is this is supported by the police and what they felt. She went to a property near Little Mountain, known for drug activity, and that is um, more logic than fact. But the fact that the cops went there to look supports that theory. Um, and then I believe she crossed paths with someone there. The van was located or was found by the RCMP November 20th. And that was as a result of the boyfriend calling them not to report a a missing person, but because his belongings were in her van and he wanted them back. So that's why they started to search for the van. So Barbara makes reference to Carmel's van being located. At some point in the daytime on November 15th, so the morning after she went missing, Carmel's van was observed by a witness parked at a highway rest stop at nearby Qualicum Beach. This sighting is often referred to as being at the Shady Rest. Now, the Shady Rest is an oceanside pub and restaurant that is located on the island highway. This location is about a 15-minute drive from where she was last seen. Now, beside the Shady Rest Pub is a highway rest stop that is situated along the northbound lane 
This rest stop has the ocean on one side and the highway on the other side. Directly across the highway from the rest stop and the pub is a liquor store. Now, this isn't the same liquor store where she was seen on surveillance photos. For folks who don't know the area, the Island Highway is a mostly two-lane scenic highway that travels the east coast of Vancouver Island. It is often referred to as the Old Highway, ever since a faster four-lane highway was built further inland. So despite Carmel's van being located on November 15th, the RCMP were not alerted to it until November 20th or 21st of 2017. Now this is about six days after Carmel was reported missing. Now when the RCMP attended the scene, they saw Carmel's 2002 brown Chevrolet Venture parked in the public rest stop just south of the Shady Rest Pub. Inside of the van were what seemed to be all of Carmel's belongings, including her identification. In fact, there was a pretty overwhelming amount of stuff inside of the van. It was very clear that Carmel was living in the van. Notably, the van was out of gas as well, and there were several empty jerry cans in the back. The RCMP stated, quote, The vehicle was searched. There were no signs of any struggle or violence inside the van. It appears that Carmel was living in the van, The search of the vehicle did not result in any keys or cell phone, purse, or wallet being located. So Carmel's keys, purse, and cell phone were not in the van and have not been located since. We asked Barbara what significance the Shady Rest parking lot has in relation to Carmel's disappearance. Yes, and what's interesting about where the van was found is they always make reference to the Shady Rest but it was not parked on the Shady Rest property because it would have been discovered much more quickly if it was on private property. It was in the public beach parking next to the Shady Rest. It it is a common place for people to park that are homeless um, to some degree. Yeah, I could see her possibly parking there. Um, But given some of the other information that has come to me, it's also a common, I don't know what the right word is. We want to call it a launching spot or staging spot or to go from there for people to go up into the bush. And that was her connection with these other people because that is their, what they do. That's their modus operandi. They find people who have a vehicle that can transport goods up into the bush for them. And I know that Carmel was connected with those people. I know that. Barbara has learned that the parking lot beside the Shady Rest pub was being used to shuttle supplies into the nearby homeless encampments. She explained for us a little bit about the geography in the area and how it all connects to the camps. Okay, there's a road that goes from Whiskey Creek and crosses over to Qualicum. And there's a little connecting road that kind of brings you out by the, whis- by the sorry Shady Rest. Uh, that road is called Melrose. When they did a homeless count of the camps up on Melrose, they counted 300 homeless people living in the bush up there. Over the years, there have been many official and unofficial searches for Carmel Gilmore. Most are situated in the Parksville and Qualicum Beach areas. Barbara shared with us what she knows about the searches, many of which she herself has participated in. Yeah, early on in the in the investigation they searched three different places and one was Little Mountain 
One was Horn Lake. That's another theory that's been given to me fairly consistently. She overdosed. They disposed of her body in the Horn Lake area. Now, that's a pretty clear statement, is it not? That's not hazy. There's nothing hazy about that. But it doesn't quite line up with other stuff. But they searched Horn Lake area, actually Spider Lake. He said it was more in the Spider Lake area. And Cameron Lake area on horseback. They've searched the ocean by the, by the, uh, the Shady Rest. They, the cops searched there. And they, they actually did, every 10 years, they do a cleanup at the base of Little Mountain because it's this big cliff. And people go up there and they throw all their garbage off of there. And I saw um, an article that said that they were going to do a cleanup at the base of Little Mountain. Well, I actually got a hold of the guy that was in charge of that cleanup. And I said, be aware. You know, so one half of it is be aware of what you might find. And secondly, if they haul all that stuff away, then the evidence is gone if that's where she is. The investigation into Carmel's disappearance is still an open and ongoing investigation. As such, very little information has been released. We did reach out to the Oceanside RCMP for a comment, and they provided us with the following statement. Thank you for reaching out regarding our ongoing investigation into missing person Carmel Gilmore. The investigation is active and ongoing, and we would ask anyone with any information to contact police so investigators may speak with them. Our file number is 2017-10474, and investigators can be contacted at the Oceanside RCMP at 250-248-6111. Kind regards, Sergeant Shane Worth. Barbara has followed up steadfastly on any and all leads and tips that come her way. We asked her what she has learned during this process. I've learned that there's something going on around here. And in listening to the other podcasts, one of the things that that came out of that is that um, there's a special unit back east, RCMP unit for missing people, and they do all kinds of research. And the east coast of Vancouver Island is in the top three in Canada regions for missing people. I've learned that there's a lot of people in this community that are afraid of something and someone, and it has very much stifled this investigation because people won't come forward. So as Barbara has spent the last six years searching for answers in her daughter's disappearance, we were curious if one theory tends to outweigh others. Barbara's answers connected Carmel's case with a major high-profile triple murder that remains unsolved. The prevailing theory that comes to me through others is that she was involved with the people that have since been murdered in Whiskey Creek. Number one, that is the first place that the police went to was their location, which was a different location from where they were murdered. I've searched that location myself. I think that she went to the property that was near Little Mountain, where there's a lot of drug activity, and crossed paths with the people that live up in the homeless camp. And she drove, they either drove up to the bush initially, and something happened to her, and someone else put the van where it was found, because it was carefully placed, I think, or... 
maybe it was just random. Or she drove there herself and then was taken by another vehicle up to their place. Um, when I talk to the police officer that handles this case, you know, they have certain parameters they have to work with. But there are some things that he and I agree on that follow this theory. Number one, that's the first place they went to. So the way that he puts it to me, because over the five years we've developed quite a rapport, um, the way he puts it to me is that we have, like when we do a press release, when they do a press release or I do an interview, um, we have to stick to the facts. We both agree that she overdosed. Someone, he calls it inappropriate disposal of a body, would be the only thing that they could charge someone with, let's say, if they were going to charge someone. Because you, you couldn't charge them with murder because it's an overdose. There's no way of knowing if it happened to her or if it just randomly happened or if it was purposely done, which has been speculated. So that's the strongest theory I have to go on and nothing to prove it. So in my conversations with Barbara, the Whiskey Creek murders came up quite a bit. In order to move forward with this episode, we need to talk about that case. We're going to give you a short version of the events. However, if you want a deep dive into the Whiskey Creek murders, Laura Palmer on the Island Crime Podcast has done a multiple episode expose on that case. She has also written a few articles for City News, and we highly suggest you check out the Island Crime Podcast. So Whiskey Creek is also referred to as the Gravel Pit Murders. Essentially, there was a patch of ground in the bush outside of the Parksville Qualicum area that had several RVs parked on it. The residents in the area were unhoused in the traditional sense, and people stuck in the cycle of addiction and mental health issues. Now, on Halloween evening 2020, an outreach worker was making her way out to the Whiskey Creek camp to drop off supplies. The outreach worker received an ominous message. Don't go to Whiskey Creek tonight. It's getting too dangerous. Rumors had been swirling for months that things in Whiskey Creek were getting unstable. The outreach worker turned around and didn't go to the camp that night. Just hours later, it would be the site of a triple homicide. The next morning, November 1st, 2020, a dirt bike rider came across the body of a man lying on the side of the Melrose Forest Service Road in rural Qualicum Beach. The victim would later be identified as only Tyler, a 38-year-old man who was living with bipolar disorder and substance use disorder. By all accounts, Tyler was in the wrong place at the wrong time and not the intended target. As investigators arrived at the scene, they pushed further into the nearby Whiskey Creek encampment. They came upon the scene of a massacre. Several RV campers were smoldering, having burned through the night. Also on the premises were four dead dogs and the bodies of two individuals. The first was 38-year-old Shanda Jeanette Wilson, who was also known as Shanda Jeanette Atkinson. Now, Shanda was a local drug dealer with trafficking charges dating back to 2014. She has court appearances from Port Alberni to Nanaimo. Also dead at the scene was 52-year-old Sean McGrath, otherwise known as Richard Moore, Sean Moore, Sean Thompson, and Crazy. Another unidentified man was found at the scene with injuries that he then survived. It is believed that the compound was attacked by one or more individuals, 
All of the victims were assumed to be shot, and then the structures were set ablaze. The strong-held rumor in the community is that Sean McGrath was the intended target of the hit. Sean was well known to the criminal justice system. He has a violent history that dates back decades. In fact, he had just been released from prison 18 months before the murder. Sean was known to be the boss of the Whiskey Creek community and held power over the vulnerable people in the area. His own father, known locally as Papa John, was also a convicted drug dealer. Now in his 80s, Papa John believes that his son ripped off some drug dealers and that this triple homicide was retribution. Now, one of the theories that has been told to Barbara is that Carmel was known to Sean McGrath and that perhaps Sean or his associates had something to do with her disappearance. Now, with Sean, it's hard to know where he was at any given time as much of his time was spent either in jail or being released from jail. But we can confirm that Sean was charged with driving without a license and possession of a controlled substance on November 24, 2017. This charge was in the nearby city of Nanaimo, This was seven days after Carmel went missing, 40 minutes down the highway from Parksville. So we know that he was out of prison and in the area at the time of Carmel's disappearance. Now at this point, this is of course just a rumor. And what, if any connection the Whiskey Creek victims have to do with Carmel, may never be known as both investigations seem to have stalled. When Barbara heard of the Whiskey Creek murders, she attended the scene to see for herself. I did go up to the murder scene when it happened, when the integrated major crimes unit was there, I went up there and I said to them, held up the poster, I said, this is my daughter. We believe she may have been a victim of these people. Just want you to know. And I did actually, I went and made a report at the Parksville detachment. Um, And I did have a woman get in touch with me from that integrated crimes unit and we had a chat but nothing became of it you know there's a fine line between due diligence and obsession and i've wandered in both streets carmel's disappearance has had a profound effect on the community people still reach out to barbara to this day to talk about carmel or to share information with her we asked barbara if she could help us to understand the personal toll that her daughter's disappearance has had on her um Well, I don't talk to very many people because I have a hard time. Even people who have had losses, I feel really bad because sometimes I'm resentful because they got to bury them. And I get to go out in the bush and search for bones under some very horrific circumstances. If anybody wants, and I say that, you know, anybody wants to go with me, you're welcome to come with me. And then there's part of me that goes, what if I'm wrong? What if that isn't what happened? So there's always the back and forth, right? What if I'm wrong? What if that's not what happened? What if she got kidnapped by some random person and taken up island? And then I keep having people come to me and say, look, this is what I heard. Or that, you know, quite often it's, this is, uh, this is what I heard. And I know full well that, that secondhand, thirdhand information bears no weight. They can't act on it. Barbara has sought out counseling over the years to work through the ambiguous loss that she experiences. She has also found it helpful to speak to other families of those who are missing and or murdered. 
While some of these interactions are therapeutic, others provide even more insights into the criminal underworld on Vancouver Island. In some of the counseling, I did talk about the ambiguous grief or loss, whatever. And and now, so so we're on the path of these people that we think are responsible, and then all of a sudden they're killed. So I go, is that good? Is that bad? I don't even know. On one level, I think, well, that's justice, kind of. Probably more justice than I would ever get from the court system. Am I happy about it? No. Don't even know how to feel about it. But I will say this, and this is kind of important for where I'm at right now. I watched Lisa Marie Young's search. Um, Another one that caught my attention was Emma Philippoff from down in Victoria. And I studied that one at great length. I even spoke with her mother in Perth, Ontario for an hour and a half. I'm quite familiarized with that one. And again, some similarities to Carmel and the fact that I now know that there is activity down in that area as well, Souk in particular, some of this kind of activity that we're referring to. Um, So my decision, although I will probably be open to anything that comes my way, I am not going to torture myself with 20 years of searching. Uh, If that is what I believe happened, okay, the person that came to me and said she was overdosed, raped, and burned, if I am to believe that, I am going to accept that as truth, and I'm going to stop searching because the people that did it are dead. I might never find her bones. In talking to Barbara, it becomes clear that in her opinion, her daughter did not die by suicide or willingly leave her life. She was either the victim of foul play or she had an accidental death that was covered up. As far as we know, Carmel's boyfriend, the last person to see her alive, is not currently a suspect in her disappearance or death. We asked Barbara how people who hear this podcast can help. You know one thing that... that um has frustrated me all along, and I know other people have alluded to this too, that all of these things, like we're like isolated little pockets, and I think that might be where folks like you come in. Basically, if anybody knows anything, or, you know, it's kind of the same old thing that they always say, please come forward, you know, reach out to someone. It could be me. I mean, I respect people's anonymity, The public, well, if you happen to see a shoe with a foot in it, turn it in. You know, I'm I'm just at a loss to know what people can do. If you trip over something that looks suspicious, let us know. (laughs) Because really, for in my case or in Carmel's case, it's going to be a DNA fluke someday, maybe. As we seem to say in almost every episode, many Canadian families are struggling with a loved one in the cycle of addiction or a severe mental health crisis. There has been a lot said in this episode about Carmel's lifestyle and her challenges. But despite their ups and downs, Barbara has a strong emotional message about her daughter. I think what I'd like people to know is a couple of things. 
although she had fallen into a bad lifestyle, she was a good person and she was loved by a lot of people. Some who've come forward to me in messages, or maybe I've heard something and I've connected with them. Um, and the other thing I want people to know is that somebody knows what happened. We are convinced of that. And if anyone knows, you know, please come forward. You know, it's, it's agony. There's times when I want to move out of this town. And even my doctor has said to me, well, that might not be a bad idea because it tortures me because there are so many people in this town that know our family, that people walk up to me all the time. They either want to tell me about a dream or a vision that they had, what they believe is true. You know, most of the feedback that I get about my daughter is not, well, she was a thug with a knife. You know what I mean? It's what a lovely person she was. She was always kind to other people. You know, when, when she was in her right mind, she was a good person that was, you know, dragged into that lifestyle by drug use. And so, yeah, that, that's the main thing I want. That's the main part of her story that I want out, that she was a good person and that she was trying and she always tried. Carmel Gilmore was last seen in the Parksville area of Vancouver Island on or around November 14th or 15th, 2017. At the time of her disappearance, Carmel is described as a white female with shorter brown hair and hazel eyes. Carmel is 5'6", with a medium build. Anyone with information about Carmel's current whereabouts or details about her disappearance is asked to call the Oceanside RCMP at 250-248-6111. Or you can report a tip anonymously to Crime Stoppers by going to nanaimocrimestoppers.com or calling 1-800-222-8477. Carmel's file number is 2017-10474. There are people out there who know what happened to Carmel. Maybe you are listening to this episode right now. We ask you to reach out to the Oceanside RCMP and to get this information off your chest. Help bring some answers to a mother and a community. We would like to thank Barbara Gilmore for trusting us with her family's story. We hope that answers come soon. And as always, thank you all for listening to this episode of True North True Crime. We are super grateful that we are able to share these important stories with you. We will be back soon with a new episode. So until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.